Take your Bibles and turn to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 10, <coughs> verses 32 through 52. We'll finish out the chapter today. <coughs> Let us listen carefully as we read from God's Word. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. <coughs> and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. He, he will rise. Excuse me. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Barnabas, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he, cried, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Thus ends a reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen? Yeah. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful this morning. After a busy week and a lot of things that have transpired um, in our lives and in various ways and various parts of our lives and different relationships. We are so thankful that we could pray to the God who is above the stars and heaven above. The God who is not just beyond the Milky Ways, but the God 
who is beyond galaxy after galaxy, myriads of myriads of galaxies upon galaxies. Oh God, you sit so high enthroned above that all things are placed under your feet. And yet your word tells us that you are closer than our very breath, that you hem us in before and behind, that you, Lord, are with a lowly of heart. And we pray that you would be with us today. God, speak to us. God, speak to us. Open our hearts to hear your word. Lord, not just listening for a good sermon, but listening for the word of the Lord, that you would speak to your people that we need to hear. Let us give careful, careful attention to the things that we hear this day that we might do it. Oh God, we thank you and pray this in your name. Amen. Now, as we come to Mark chapter 10, some of you who are very astute may have realized that this is about the third time that Mark has actually covered the same topic of Jesus predicting his suffering and his death and his resurrection. As a matter of fact, you you're welcome to turn there if you want. Back in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38 was the first time that Jesus brought this up. And then chapter 9, verses 30 through 35, he, he brings it up again. And then, of course, in our text that we have here before us today. So I would suggest to you, this is something we need to get. Something we need to hear if he keeps bringing this up over and over and over Jesus predicts his suffering and his death and his resurrection. But what's interesting about this is each time Jesus does this, there's sort of this pattern that follows. First of all, Jesus predicts his suffering, death, and resurrection. And then the disciples don't get it. Back in chapter 8, verses 31 through 38, Peter, in hearing uh, Jesus say this, rebukes him. He doesn't get it. And then... In chapter 9, we see the disciples arguing over who's the greatest of all. And then, of course, here in chapter 10, we see James and John asking to sit on the right and the left hand of Jesus. And then, after that, then there's a sense in which Jesus rebukes them for their blindness. In chapter 8, Jesus just comes right out and rebukes Peter. Get thee behind me, Satan, he says. But then, in chapter 9 and in chapter 10, he uses a little more subtle in fact, he uses sort of an object lesson. In chapter 9, he uses a little child to rebuke the disciples. And then in chapter 10, he uses the story and the account of a blind Bartimaeus. And so, uh, as we come this morning, Jesus wants to confront his disciples, both then and even today, with these questions. He wants us to ask this, are we seeing things properly this morning? You see, the story of the account of Barnabas is there to rebuke the disciples that, guys, you just don't get it. You don't see. You're spiritually blind. But Jesus is the one that opens blind eyes. And so we need to ask ourselves, do we see things properly this morning? Do we understand the cross? Do we understand the cross? Has, has, that under, has our understanding of the cross changed and molded and shaped our view of what greatness truly is. 
You see, James and John wanted to be great. They wanted to be somebody. And Jesus says, no, if you really want to understand greatness, you have to understand it through the cross. And so do you realize that the greatness has nothing to do with being an important person or having lots of stuff and lots of power or being able to make people do what you want them to do. That's not what greatness is all about. Now, I know that many of the younger generation, they, they would not even define greatness that way, right? You know, it's not about the stuff. Actually, you know, now the, the sort of the trendy thing is to be a minimalist, okay? And so, you know, we can take great pride in having less things uh, instead. And, and it's not about authority or about power. As a matter of fact, uh, the sort of the authority structure in a business ought to be more flat. It ought to be where everybody has a say and everybody is equal. But still, even in that, we want to be influencers. We want people to hear us. We want to be able to bring about change and affect change. So whether you see yourself as being someone who wants great things or lots of things, or great power or authority, or you're a minimalist, or you want to just be an influencer, nonetheless, that's not what greatness is all about. Jesus reminds us that greatness is getting down on your knees like Jesus and serving other people and giving your life away, not as you want to, but as God wants you to give it away to others. One of the lessons that, that Robbie and I learned years ago and that we tried to, to teach our children is that helping is not helping if you're doing what you think is helpful, right? If you're trying to help somebody in the way you want to help, then it's not necessarily helpful. What you want to do for that person, and you want to do it the way you want to do it for that person, but that may not always be helpful. Rather, helping is doing what would be helpful for the person that you're trying to serve. And how often do we serve others in a way that is convenient for us. You know, we, we may sacrifice and give of our time and, and our possessions, but how often do we do it in a way where it makes sure that it doesn't interfere with our life? We don't mind serving, and we may even commit to serve, but if other things come up in our life that we realize that needs to be taken care of, we may forego that serving just to make sure that the things in our lives are, are taken care of. You know, it's, it's a little bit like the story of the widow's mite. If you remember, the, the people were coming into the temple and they had the collection place and people were throwing lots of coins, bags of money and stuff like that into the offering plate. People were giving great amounts and here's this widow. She comes in with two little coins, two, the widow's mites, and she drops them in. And Jesus says, who gave more? And then, of course, it was the widow. Because the point was this, that the people, while they gave largest amount and, and they sacrificed because they gave, they could have used that money for themselves. So they did sacrifice, but they didn't sacrifice all. She was self-sacrificing where she gave everything for God. So as we think about greatness in this world, we need to ask ourselves, so is greatness about acquiring stuff and having influence and control over your life and that of others? Or is it about your life being poured out as a drink offering for the sake of Christ? Is it sacrificing your plans? Is it sacrificing your agendas and, and your dreams, your desires in this world 
to give your life away to others, being Christ's hands and His feet? Is it doing His will, not your will? How you answer that question, those questions, I guess I should say, reveals whether or not you really understand the cross. Do you understand the cross? Has it, has it changed the way you see people? The, the way that you see yourself and the way that you serve others as you serve your God? Well, this morning I want us to look at just a couple things this morning in this text that's very familiar. Uh, the first thing I want us to see, and these are sort of long points, but uh, as far as the title of the point, maybe not the content of the point, but the first point I want us to see is, is that our great Savior was willing to be rejected by men because of his desire to serve you. That our great Savior was willing to be rejected by men because of his desire to serve you. Now, I know that Christ actually came to do the will of the Father. So he was serving God ultimately. But even in doing that, he came to serve us. He came to uh, uh, get a people for the Father, uh, for himself. But in doing so, uh, he served us and gave us such a great salvation. And so look at verses 32 through 35. You see Jesus describing his upcoming suffering and his death. And I want you to notice here, that the direction, the rejection that Jesus went through was complete. It was total. On so many different levels, Jesus Christ was rejected. First of all, Jesus' disciple will deliver him over. Actually, the word in the Greek means to betray. And we know that Judas betrayed Jesus to the chief priest and the scribes. So, so those closest to him, those who lived with him, those who pledged allegiance to his ministry and supported his ministry. I know Judas was a thief as well, but he also was there participating in the ministry of Christ. He turned his back upon Jesus and betrayed him. And then we see, second of all, in this text, that the Jewish religious community would condemn Jesus to death. And then they would deliver Jesus from the religious people to the pagan people, to the Romans. And they will, it says here, mock him. Kids, do you know what mocking means? It means making fun of someone, saying hurtful things about them. They were ridiculing Jesus and mocking him and making fun of him. They spat on him. They spit on him. We only spit on things that we have sort of disdain for and we don't like. They spit on him. They flogged him. And they killed him. Now think about this. Think about this. Here is the king of all kings. Here is the Lord of all lords, the creator of all things, who speaks and it happens. Now, if you just think about what I sort of prayed about earlier, that we have our world with all the people and the, the creation and the plants and all of that, that's magnificent in and of itself. But then you think of the stars and the planets that are in our solar system in the Milky Way. And then you think of all the different Milky Ways that, that there are and how we, we can't even see the end of all of God's creation. And he spoke and it happened. That is the power of God. And, and Christ exhibits that power in his word 
even as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and the soldiers come to arrest Jesus and they ask Jesus, they ask Jesus, are you the Christ? And what does he say? I am. And he speaks that word that is declaring the name of God. And kids, do you remember what happened to the soldiers? They fell backwards on the ground because Christ's power was so great. And so Peter, of course, thinking he needs to step in, you know, takes his sword and cuts off the servant's ear. And Jesus heals the servant's ear and he goes, what are you doing? Now, this is Pastor Rick's translation, okay? What are you doing, dude? Do you think I'm not strong enough? I can call down 144,000 angels to defend me if I wanted to do so. And yet I've chosen not to do that. So it's not that I'm not able. It's that I'm choosing not to do that. He is the judge of all mankind. Jesus is the one in whom all those who mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him live and move and have their being. If Jesus removed his creating and sustaining power from them, then they would immediately return to dust from which they were created. But Jesus was willing, even though he is that powerful, even that's though who he is, he is willing to be rejected and despised and spat upon and crucified naked uh, because of his desire to serve you. Look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so our great Savior was willing to be rejected by men because of his desire to serve you. But I want you to see, second of all, that our great Savior was willing to be cursed by God because of his desire to serve you. He was willing to be cursed by God because of his desire to serve you. Look at verses 35 through 45. James and John said to Jesus, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, I don't know anybody in this congregation that if after church a little kid comes up to you and says, I want you to do whatever I ask you to do, will you do it? <laughs> None of us would see that as a good thing, right? We would all go, yeah, I don't think so. Go find your parents, you know, right? <laughs> or something, you know, it wouldn't be a good thing. And, and yet, when they say that to Jesus, what does Jesus say in verse 36? What do you want me to do? Now, this is a question that we're actually going to see a couple of times in this text. What do you want me to do? And, and in verse 37, they said to him, Grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. Now, the text doesn't tell us exactly what's going on in the minds of, of James and John, but, but we, I, I think this is probably a fair guess, okay? I mean, one of the th details that um, we sort of learn in this passage and we don't learn in the other passages that Mark told us is that they're going to Jerusalem. Now, they've been up here in Galilee ministering, right? They've gone to the outlying areas of some of the Gentiles, and now they're making their way down to Jerusalem. Well, if you are of the mindset, like the disciples were, that Jesus is the Messiah, and he has come to establish uh, the, the, his kingly rule, he's going to do that in Jerusalem. And so, you know, it's interesting, as you look at verse 32, uh, the middle part of that verse, it says, And they were amazed 
and those who followed him were afraid. You know, there, there had to be some excitement there in these disciples as they think, he's going to Jerusalem, is this it? You know, is, is he going to establish his rule? This could be really exciting, sort of terrifying too, to see what's sort of going to happen, but is he going to throw over the, overthrow the Romans and stuff? And so there's sort of this sense that's going through their minds, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if that truly is what was going on, that James and John were thinking, well, if he's going to do that, we need to make sure that we carve out a niche for ourselves in this kingdom. And let's go to Jesus, and let's ask him if, if I might sit on his right and you might sit on his left. And so they do. And in verse 38, Jesus is very patient, and he said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or the baptism, uh, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, what, what is the cup that, that Jesus is speaking of here for himself? Well, in the Old Testament, a cup oftentimes um, um, sort of conjures up the imagery either of blessing, or more oftentimes, it's that of judgment. And, and I would suggest to you that, based on the context here, that he's really talking about the cup of the wrath of the Father. In verse 45, he speaks of Jesus giving his life as a ransom for many. Um, turn with me, if you would, to, to Psalm 75. Psalm 75. This is a, a psalm that um, addresses the pride of, of mankind. It's a warning against pride. And if you look at verse 4, we read this. I say to you, I say to the boastful, this, this is really a warning of the day of judgment, okay? I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Kids, that actually, that word horn is a reference to strength, okay? So don't lift up your strength. Don't tell me how great you are, okay? Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty or proud neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Now, now think about these words in light of James and John's request. What are they asking for? They're asking for a position of prominence. They're asking to be exalted. They're asking to be lifted up above everything else. And yet this psalm speaks how God is the one who lifts up. That's not something that we, that we seek ourselves. As a matter of fact, we read here in this text that God puts down the proud. Let's continue in verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. You see, that's, that cup is referring to God's judgment. Another passage, we won't have time to turn there, but I'll just give you the reference. Jeremiah 25, verses 15 and following, it also talks about the cup of the wine of the wrath of God. And if you remember when Jesus, he's entering the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, he's faced with what it means to become sin and face the wrath of God. What does he pray? Father, if it be your will, what? Let this cup pass from me. It is the cup of the wrath of God. This is the cup that, that all of us, brothers and sisters, should drink. But it is the cup that he did drink. On behalf of, on behalf of us.
And then he talks about, back in Mark, um, baptism. Okay, baptism. It, it's a baptism of, of judgment and fire. Um, look, um, turn from Mark, turn over to Luke chapter 12, uh, verses 49 and 50. Luke 12, 49 and 50. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now obviously the baptism that Jesus is talking about here that he would have to partake in is his death. Now whenever we think of a baptism by fire, we think of some terrible trial, but for Christ... The cross was a baptism of the judgment of God. Uh, you're very familiar with the words of Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You see, David Wells said, nothing so affirms the holiness of God as the fact that Christ had to die for sinners. Christ had to die for sinners. Our sins cannot simply be forgotten. Have you ever encountered somebody who said that? Well, why can't God just forgive your sins? Why can't God just say, it's okay, I'll just mark it all out. But, but what they don't understand is, for God to do that, He would have to cease to be who He is. Because He is a just God. And could you imagine if someone had 75,000 parking tickets, and they came before a judge, and the judge is like, well, just let him go. You know, and you go, well, I might see where that could be a gracious thing. But let me drive it home a little bit more. Let's say that someone murders a member of your family. And they stand before a judge and he says, ah, it's okay. Let it go. You would be furious because justice has not been done. And God is that way. He is a just God and he must punish sin. I mean, that's why the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. That's how serious our sins are. Someone must pay that price. And your Savior, because He loved you and He desired to serve you, paid the infinite, unmitigated wrath of God. He paid the infinite, unmitigated wrath of God. It was yours to drink because it was you who sinned. But your Savior stepped up and He said, Father... I'll drink that cup. And he did. Jesus drank that cup to ransom you, to rescue you. Now, when he talks about James and John taking that cup, that doesn't mean that they somehow are going to act in a vicarious way. Rather, he's simply saying that they will encounter suffering. Uh, we won't take the time to turn there this morning, but in Isaiah 51, verses 17 through 23, it talks about the cup that is given to God's people, which is the suffering of God's people. And so they would suffer even though Jesus' cup was much more serious. And if Jesus drank the cup to ransom you, to rescue you, then our idea of greatness has to change, brothers and sisters. When we think of the great life, what do we think of? Well, you know, we might think about acquiring more, about climbing up, about getting. Matter of fact, uh, I'm no Latin expert, but I read this week that that the Latin word for ambition literally means to climb or to seek a promotion. And we as Americans are very uh, ambitious people for the most part. We think greatness comes in having all the stuff. 
so that we can parade our stuff in front of other people and they can be envious of us. Or, as I said earlier, maybe in the case of minimalists, they may uh, pride themselves in having less. But nonetheless, the attitude is still that of one of pride because of what I have done or what I have not done. I have not succumbed to all the, 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 uh, the hoarding and stuff. In either case, we want people to see how extraordinary we are. We think that greatness might mean having power or influence for others. So for some, this means that, that they want people to recognize their authority, whether that be at work. They want people to understand they're the boss and you must do what I say. Or maybe at home that that's the case. But then there may be others that they say, well, maybe not power and authority because that's evil, but I do want to influence others. Of course, for what I know is good, you know, we, we want people to to do that because we think it's good, but it's still to control others nonetheless. And brothers and sisters, we, we can see that in our lives. We, we can see that in our marriages. As men, we may like to be in charge and, and we like our wives to do what we say and, and our children as well. Or, or maybe for the wives, you may boast about being in charge even though your husband is the head of the house. I'm sure you guys have heard of the quote where it says the man may be the head but the wife is the neck and she turns the head and some women they take great pride in the fact that they know how to manipulate their husbands in certain way and of course for the good of the family right but you know you might see yourself as a lady who gets things done and you take great pride in that but we need to be careful that we don't see greatness in that way Paul Tripp in his book on marriage says, all of us, and, and I would say, by the way, this includes married people and people who are not married, so it's all of us in this room. All of us view people as either vehicles or obstacles. Vehicles are people who help us get what we want, and obstacles are people who get in the way of what we want. And we usually categorize people in one of those two different ways. And we want to be around people who are vehicles for us, that help us to accomplish our agenda and our to-do list and our tasks and our goals and our aspirations and our desires and all those things, but we really despise people who are obstacles. As a matter of fact, I see so many people on social media that if somebody is an obstacle to them, if somebody challenges them in some way, rather than seeing that maybe as an instrument of God's sanctification in their life, they just say, I'll have nothing to do with you, and they unfriend them, and they totally get them out of their life, and they call them toxic. We are so full of ourselves and so empty of Christ at times. Is that our idea of greatness? Kids, maybe you're a big brother and a big sister. And, and you like to make sure that your little brother and your little sister know that you're the oldest. And that they should listen to you. That you're the first in the pecking order. And they're like third or fourth or fifth or whatever. And they need to listen to you. Is that truly what, what greatness is all about? You see, Jesus calls us to come and to stand before the only one who is actually someone. The King of Kings. The Lord of Lords. Who made himself nothing. Not, not by ceasing to be what he was, but by becoming something he had never been before. 
he emptied himself, not by subtracting something from himself, but by adding something. And what we see here in the text is he became a what? A slave, a servant. Actually, that word is bond servant. It's the lowest slave in the family. That's the person who does the worst and most difficult task. And he came not to be served, but to serve. Brothers and sisters, that is greatness. That's what greatness is all about. Jesus said in verse 42, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, your bondservant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Excuse me, slave is the bondservant. So what Mark is telling us this morning is that we need to be a dog and not a cat, okay? If you have pets, you understand exactly what I'm saying, right? Dogs have masters, right? What do cats have? They have staff, right? They have people that take care of their needs. I like the way my wife always puts it. She says, dogs say, my owner feeds me and cares for me. He must be great. Okay, or she must be great. But cats say, my owner feeds me and cares for me. I must be great, right? That's sort of the difference in the attitudes between cats and dogs. We won't get into birds. That's for another day. But anyway, but too many of us are cats, are we not? We, we like to treat others as staff. We want people to meet our needs. We want them to do what we want. We want them to follow our orders or do what we command. But brothers and sisters, we need more dogs with a master in heaven who came to serve, not to be served. This week I, I came across a, a poem. Uh, I think it was entitled uh, Lifters and Leaners. I'm not sure, but let me just read it to you. It says, there are just two kinds of people on earth today. Just two kinds of people, no more, I say. Not the rich and the poor, for to count a man's wealth, you must first know the state of his conscience and health. Not the humble and proud, for in life's little span, who puts on airs is not counted a man. Not the happy and the sad, for the swift counting years bring each man his laughter and each man his tears. No, the two kinds of people on earth I mean are the people who lift and the people who lean. Wherever you go, you will find the world's masses are always divided in just these two classes. And oddly enough, you will find too, I ween, or I think, there's only one lifter to 20 who lean. In which class are you? Are you easing the load of overtaxed lifters who toil down the road? Or are you a leaner who lets others bear your portion of labor and worry and care? That's sort of expressing this whole idea of service. You know, let me just apply this for a second, if I could, this morning. Paul Tripp, in his book on parenting, describes a scene where a mom is in a kitchen and she's frantically trying to cook dinner uh, because their family is having some guests over. As a matter of fact, it's six more people they are going to be coming over to their household. So mom's working frantically, trying to get dinner ready and get the house all ready and and, and she's nowhere close to being done. And the kids are in the dining room, which is just off the kitchen. 
And so they can see mom and see what she's doing. And, and they're in the family room there. They're children, they're, they're children that are 7, 9, and 11. And they're just playing a game together. Now, what's wrong with that picture? Some people may say nothing. You know, mom's working as hard as she can to get things done and the children are playing quietly together. They're not fighting. That's good. So there's really nothing wrong. But if you look at that closer, what you see in these children is in a very important lack of character. Each, each of these children is old enough to understand that their mom is working against the clock and she needs help. And each of these children have skills that they can use to help her that sort of lift that load off of her, but none of them offer to help. Why? Well, I would suggest to you it's because they don't actually care. Now, we don't want to say that, but I don't think they actually care. They, they don't care that she's stressed out and frazzled. They don't care that she might be embarrassed in front of her friends. They just don't care. Now, they love their mom, don't get me wrong, but what God is, is graciously seeking to reveal in the hearts of these children is that their hearts are not okay. And we ought not to think that they're okay either. What's being revealed is the source of much of the hurt and heartache and dysfunction and conflict in, in really any relationship. You see, it's not enough simply to address the direct disobedience of our kids. As, as parents, we must also have an eye towards their character. You see, in, in that situation that I just described, the children are not rebelling against a rule. They're not refusing to do what they're told. I want you to understand that. Okay, so I, I'm not saying that. But what they are doing is wrong in the eyes of God, and it should be wrong in our eyes as well. The problem with these children is not that they have rebelled, but they, that they have not done what is right and good and loving and kind towards their mother. So they miss God's opportunity of self-sacrifice in order to serve others. But let's be honest. Let's not just pick on the kids. Let's, let's just cover everybody, right? The men. Men, we come home from work and our wives are tired. They've been working all day long with the kids. If Maybe your family homeschools and so mom's been working a job of, of teacher and working all day with trying to keep the, the house together and everything and and, and, you know, we as men, we come home and we're tired and we just want to relax. But what does greatness look like in those situations? Isn't it asking, how may I serve my wife? Or, or what about after the kids go to bed and, and, and your wife finally gets an opportunity to sit down a little bit? It's probably 10 o'clock at night by that time, but she finally gets to sit down a little bit. And, and what are we tempted to do as men? We want to watch TV or we want to get on the internet. But how might we serve our wives? Maybe talk to her. Maybe ask her how her day has been. Your wife is crying out for your companionship. Or wives, you know, when your husband comes home from work and they're exhausted, is it not appropriate to ask, how can I serve my husband? How can I show him that I love him. Not just dumping the kids off on him and saying, look, I've had them all day, now it's your turn. But how can I show him that I desire him and yearn for him, that I treasure him and I respect him? What about those who are single in the church? 
for those who are single, you know, they go to work and, and then when they come home, oftentimes they come home and they must cook and they must clean and they must do laundry and they must mow the lawn and they must pay the bills. And at least those who are married in the congregation, there's two people to sort of share that load. But when you're living alone yourself, you have to do all of that stuff. And so families, how could we serve those who are single? Maybe invite them over for dinner and an evening of conversation or playing games or just doing something that's relaxing. Give them a chance. Let them know how much you appreciate them. You see, our questions ought to be, Lord, how can I lift up my brother or sister in Christ? How can I encourage those in my household? How do you want me to serve even when it's not convenient? You see, that's what the cross teaches us about greatness. It is the attitude of, Lord, help me to let go of what I want to do that which you want. But how do you get there if that's not where you're living right now? You know, if you say, Lord, I'll just be honest, sometimes I'm just lazy, I'm just tired. Or, Lord, I'm, I'm so self-focused. You know, how do I get to be a servant. Well, you need someone to open your eyes. And that's the reason why Mark puts this account of Barnabas at the end of the section. You see, the disciples only have eyes for their own glory and the promotion of their own agenda. That's all they can see. But here is Barnabas, a blind man who sees better than the disciples see. See, at least Barnabas realizes he's blind but the disciples do not. Barnabas acknowledges that Jesus is the coming Messiah. As a matter of fact, he refers to him as the son of David, which is a messianic title. And he cries out in verse 47, have mercy on me. Of course, the people tell him to be quiet, but Barnabas then just cries out even louder, son of David, have mercy on me. Look at verse 49. And Jesus, what? Stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up. He's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang and came up to Jesus. Now, his cloak would have been something that he would have used to, to stay warm, but his cloak would have also been the place that he would have kept all the alms that he had gotten as people had given him gifts and, and stuff to sustain him. They would, he would have kept those in his, gathered those in his cloak. But he throws all that off and he goes to Jesus. And the blind man, uh, oh, excuse me, and Jesus said to him, here's this question again. What do you want me to do for you? The exact same question we saw earlier with James and John. And the blind man said to Jesus, I want to rule by your side, either on your left or to your right. I want to be rich. Is that what he said? No. He said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. I, I want to I see. I want my vision. You see, Jesus, the same King and Lord who is in this building today, is saying really to each and every one of us, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want? Anything. Just ask. If that were the case, what would you ask for? A better job? 
bigger house, more money, more power, maybe a better marriage, maybe someone to marry if you're single, a better this, better that, I, you know, I don't know, I guess the list could go on and on. Or would we say, open the eyes of my soul that I may see your glory. As the one who was willing to die in my place for my sins, to be rejected by your enemies, that you might make your enemies, me, your family. Give me eyes to see, O God, that my world would be turned upside down and back to front, which in God's economy means that we're seeing clearly, okay? So that I might see clearly that greatness comes not by what I get, but by giving, by sacrificing all that I am to you. Not by saving my life, but by losing it. Not by treasuring my life but by pouring it out by sacrificing myself to you O oh God and to those that you want me to serve even Lord those who hate me and despise me and that I would consider my enemies you see one of the things we've been learning on Wednesday night is, is that ministry is rarely ever convenient Rarely. Ministry always comes at the most inopportune times. I don't care if that's with a best friend or a co-worker or one of your kids. You know, we used to joke that our kids never wanted to talk about serious life events until it was at least 1130 at night and Robbie and I were tired and ready to go to bed. But why is that the case? Because ministry requires sacrifice of self. You see, greatness is laying down your life until there is nothing left to give. And you can do this because your eyes have seen the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who gave himself up for us that we might come to realize his greatness. So no sacrifice that I give can be too big to give my life in serving him. So if you're here today, Christ calls you to great things, but not great things as the world defines it, but great things as he defines it. And so if you come today and you say, but Lord, my heart is not on the great things that, that you want, then I want you to know that Jesus is here and he is willing to open your eyes, simply cry out to him and he will answer you. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, you, you know that most, all of us probably, are, are really like cats. Way too many cats in our congregation. Well, Lord, I pray that you would change our hearts and help us to see that because of the cross, because of what Christ has done, that we share in his sufferings. But we have also been raised to new life, O oh God. And pray that you might use us in the different places that you have us planted to serve you through serving others. Oh, Father, please change our hearts. We cry out to you, O oh God, and pray that we could see. Pray that you would open our eyes to see the pride and the arrogance and the self-exalting positions that we so often take. And I, we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would deliver us from that. That we might be your bondservants to do your will. Oh, Lord, we pray that in that, the people around us would truly see who you are and come to faith in you. We ask in your name. Amen.